David Hool is a speaker that Richard and I met through Vistage International when we were both chairs. And I will, Richard said earlier on the call that he was, David Hool was the best speaker their group had in over 30 some years as, as a Vistage chair. And I would say the same. So David, I'm thrilled that you are willing to be with our Mary group here. I'm thrilled. To, I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, I, you and Richard were, uh, I've been big fans of yours for years and spoke to both your groups, I think 13 years ago for the first time. And then I came back a couple of times with yours, Richard. And, and I, just so everybody knows, I'm a native Midwestern born and raised in Chicago. I live now in Florida, um, may move out given what's going on here, but, um, uh, I'm a Midwesterner. So it's, it's, it's happy. I'm really happy to, to be with you all today. I will uh, inject one anecdote before we talk about future trends, but way back 20 years ago, David Hool as a futurist told our, our Vistage CEOs that if they were in the business of being a middleman, what's the, what's the politically correct word for middleman? Uh, dis disintermediation. Middle. Dis disintermediation, the root word is intermediary. So disintermediation is the removal of the intermediary, hence known as the middleman. Is there a uh, easier to understand word that we might use? But besides to me, that's a real easy word, disintermediation. Um, oh, it, okay. it, 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 it's, it's getting rid of the intermediary. Okay. All right. Well, I think we got it now. But anyway, you advised our group that if they were in that business, that they would be out of business if they didn't rethink how they uh, how they did things. And of course, back then, 20 some years ago, it was met with great disbelief. We've always done it that way. Our business isn't gonna go away. Well, lo and behold, you were correct. And uh, those who did not heed your advice uh, regretted it. Let's just put it that way. So let's talk about the future, David. Um, what, demographic changes are you seeing that are going to really dictate what happens in the next few years? Um, you have to refine that question. You mean in the United States, globally, in the next 20 years? Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the United States first and then, and then move. Okay. Um, so the United... Um, Population is a really interesting topic right now um, because overpopulation is part of the problem of so many part of the problems that we have. So historically, demographics were always equal to GDP. The reason post World War II America grew at six percent per year GDP was the population grew at six percent per year. So. It, it, it's kind of like a, a, a bad legacy thinking to think that population equals GDP because if that's the case, um, we're not we're not growing at more than a, um, than the population in the United States. We're contracting. Um, the problem the problem with the demographics is perceptual from that past viewpoint. In other words, oh, we're all getting a whole lot older. Oh, Japan's getting a whole lot older. Oh, the United States is getting a whole lot older. So there's, there'll be fewer young people to support the old people. That just means we need to change the model. We need to change the all the benefits in the structures and the tax code. So uh, I would say very simply that demographics are becoming oversimplified, less white and older. So what does that mean in terms of healthcare, in terms of real estate, in terms of technology? Um, well, you know, we're at a point in time, as you know, I've written a series of books on the 2020s, the most disruptive decade in history. And we're at this tipping point. It was great that you played that music, right, from 2001, because, you know, the, the obelisk came in right when the apes had an evolutionary uh, thrust forward where they realized they had something called a weapon. And then the next time was when they were at the moon, right? So at each evolutionary step, significant step, there's a whole lot of things that go on. So it, it, it's hard to say 
that demographics is going to affect real estate this way, because, for example, in real estate, we have to completely redo real estate, right? We have a lot of um, probably a lot of the people on this call looks like are boomers, probably a lot of them retired. And so the question is, how does housing look in retirement? Do you need a we built all these big McMansions and do we need 5,000, 6,000 square feet of space? No, you subdivide them. So two or three retired boomer couples could live there. So, so the, the demographics is going to trigger real estate in the sense that it, future homes are going to be smaller and they're going to be more efficient energy wise relative to the environment. Um, it's you know the, the the real problem today in housing is a total lack of affordable housing in the world in the United States almost anywhere you go. So the demographics are less significant in real estate. I think they're going to be more significant in social policy and in politics. Um, you're going to have an increasingly less white electorate. You're going to have a younger electorate to some degree in the sense that the demographics of the, the Gen Z and the Gen Y is a higher percent of voting participation. Um, what the midterm showed was that was that 18 to 24 year olds are showing up in a greater amount than they've ever been before. So um, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't I know you're interested in demographics. I'm less interested in it because there's so many big things that are going to affect beyond that. Um, well, well, tell me about that then. Well, we're at a moment. So um, we basically, I'm, I'm, I'm at the highest level, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm just doing a new presentation, as I think I mentioned to you in, a, in an earlier call, called The Trajectories of the Future. And the people alive today, everybody on this call, is confronted with the following choice. We have, humanity has a trajectory of 100 to 200 years or 100,000 to 200,000 years. And everybody alive today is gonna to be involved in making that decision. In other words, uh, if we follow, if, if we just go on the path we're on relative to CO2 and climate, if we go on the path we are in terms of overpopulation, if we go on the path in terms of resource consumption, um, there won't be a, civil, a civilization as we know it by 2100, and we may well become extinct by 2200, okay? So, or, and the average mammalian species lives more than a million years. Modern humanity has been around for 150,000. So we've got 850,000 years to go if we're like all our mammalian brothers and sisters, if you will. And we've always felt, and we've been educated, and we've been told that we're at the top of the evolutionary pyramid. We are the best of all the mammals. So if we're the best of all the mammals, we should be able to figure out what every other mammal has figured out is how to survive for a million years on this planet. So we are literally at that point where the people alive today particularly those under the age of 40, which is the majority of the US population, um, have to decide things for the next 50 generations. That's where we are. So in, are you talking about legislation? Are you talking about personal choices in consumer products? What are you talking about specifically? If we wanna, if we wanna, if, Right now, the, there, there have been five extinction events in the history of Earth. And they've all occurred and resulted in 75 to 97% of all the existing species becoming extinct. We are now in the sixth extinction event. It's the first one caused by humans. So we are creating, there's 150 species a day that become extinct, which is 10,000 times more than the last several million years. So we're triggering an extinction event and we can either stay the course or we can find another path. And I, it, it's pretty much 
Um, it's like our Buckminster Fuller wrote 50 years ago, that it's a touch and go situation for humanity to remain in the cosmos with this fork in the road. We can choose to create the future we want, or we can stay on the path we're on. So the fossil fuel industry has done a, a really amazing job of long-term strategic planning politically. Is, is the younger generation aware? I mean, are they, are they not buying that? Or I know we're going to be talking about electric vehicles, presumably here in this conversation, but is there more of an awareness that despite what you hear on some radio and television stations, global warming or climate change is real. Is that, are the new kids coming up going to be uh, more aware than this generation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way to think about, I, 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 I kind of didn't answer your questions about demo, dem, demographics as well as I should have, but, but, Think of generations, right? So we've got the silent generation, the boomer generation, the Gen X generation, the millennial generation, the digital natives, and now generation alpha, which is the, the kids of the millennials, right? So you've got five generations in the workplace. Each generation is more technologically savvy than the prior one and is much more environmentally aware. So for example, I was 21 at the first Earth Day, so I started to learn about it then. And my son, who's now 36, when he was five, he would say, Daddy, we have to recycle that, right? So, so they've grown up with this. So the younger you go, the more environmentally aware they, they are, and the, more, the less they have been indoctrinated into the consumer society. And, you know... What is going to have to happen, now I'm talking oh, between now and 2050, we're going to have to complete, we're going to have to completely get off of, of fossil fuels. We're going to have to stop consumption and we're going to have to do what has never existed in history of humanity, which is a no growth economy. We have to go into no growth and we have to go into, um, right now there's 8 billion people on the planet. And there's a direct correlation between people on the planet and fossil fuel, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, I should say, right? So the bottom line is, is, that, is that we've got to change that. So we know that if we continue on the path we're on, let's put it, let's stay with climate for a sec. Right now, the earth has warmed 1.2 degrees Celsius from its norm pre-industrial revolution, right? And look at what is happening to weather and the planet right now. We are on a path to get to three degrees Celsius by 2050. So if we're experiencing what we're experiencing at 1.2, it doesn't increase arithmetically, it increases geometrically. So we don't know what that reality is gonna be like. So the only way to anticipate it is to assume it's gonna get a lot worse and therefore, anybody here, I'm looking at probably a lot of grandparents, right? Grandparents, in my history as being a futurist and being known as the green futurist, grandparents are the single most involved and concerned demographic in climate change because you got grandkids, right? So do you want your grandkids to have to fight for food, water, land, fresh air? Or can we go from 8 billion down to 3 or 4 billion by 2100? The way to think about it is that we've, we, humanity, whenever I use the pronoun we, I'm talking about humanity, we, humanity, have had two centuries of, of planetary degradation, right? We've killed off species. We've taken down 2 trillion trees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've got 100 years to pay that debt back to get into a regenerative state. So we have to we have to move to a regenerative society if we, humanity, want to be in existence in 100 years. David, I'm going to open this up to uh, the folks on the call if they have questions or comments. 
But in the meantime, before we before we get and just raise your hand if you know how to use the emoji or just raise it raise it uh, this way. Uh, but David, do you do you still do public speaking? Did you still are you still uh, available for keynote addresses that sort of thing? Or have sure. you okay? Yeah, I mean I'm. I mean, you know, back in the day when I spoke to your groups, uh, respectfully, um, I was doing 75 to 100 speeches a year. I'm now doing 12 to 15. That's my choice. Um, I'm doing that. And then I have a sub stack newsletters that I put a lot of energy into. So, yeah, I do. Okay, great. Um, who has the first question? Just uh, step right up. I'm not seeing any questions. Kathleen on does. She's got her yeah. hand up. Okay, Kathleen, go for it. You are first. You got to unmute, Kathleen. Lorela, Lorela. Oh. She's got a hand up. No, I don't have a hand up that Kathleen Mirren is on. Okay, well, there's a big hand up. Maybe it's behind you. I don't have a hand up either. <laughs> All right. I guess we don't want to speak. All right, Offenberger, I'm going to call on you first. You always have a good question to start the ball rolling. Um, if I missed the, any introduction, I, I may have. David, where are you from and what has been your background? Did I miss that? Um, you said no. you were a Midwesterner. I know that. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Chicago. My father was a professor at University of Chicago, grew up around the university there. Um, I had about, um, um, I, I um, got an art history degree, which I source is one of the reasons I am a futurist. Um, I traveled and lived in a van. What I did, Chuck, is I did things that people said I were stupid to do. I graduated from college <laughs> and I lived in a van. People don't live in vans. And then years later, everyone is living in a van. And then by then I was backpacking around the world. And people said to me in the early 70s, you could take that money and buy a house. And you know, I wanted to backpack around the world, right? Then, in, then I became very successful in media. I sold television time for NBC and CBS. And to the point of how did I become a futurist, I in 1980, so CBS was the Tiffany network. It was the number one network. I was the number one sales guy in Chicago. And I took a 50% pay cut to go join the then 25 people that we went on and created MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1, CNN, Headline News. And then later in the 90s, I was managing director of a dot-com startup. It was one of the first companies that ever did online courses. So you go back, video music, who's going to, what do you mean video music? No one's going to watch a 24-hour news channel, a channel just for kids, and then later no one's ever going to take online courses, right? So I've always did things that were that became things that people did or that people didn't think would work. And then I just became a futurist full-time about 17 years ago. What so, you, oh, go ahead. You know, so does that answer your question, Chuck? Yes, it's good. Well, where do you live now? I live in Sarasota, Florida right now. Oh, terrific. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Chuck. In Sarasota, how long will it be before the water comes and destroys downtown? It's really funny. I uh, Back in 2016, I, I wrote a book called This Spaceship Earth, and then I started a global nonprofit. And we did a sea level rise video called um, uh, Bird's Eye View. And so we looked at Siesta Beach, which is always rated one of the top five beaches in the United States that's here in Sarasota. And we look at the high um, tide line of that day in October 2016. And then we looked at what, based on NOAA data, would be the 2030 high tide. And then we looked at the 2040 high tide. And the 2030 high tide, half the beach was gone. And the 2040 high tide, not only was the beach gone, but the parking lot was gone. So basically, um, the, the, the current... There's a wide range of forecasts of sea level rise on the Earth, and it changes. So for the Gulf Coast, it will rise more than the East Coast and the East Coast of Florida. But the East Coast of, of the United States is sinking, so it's going to happen faster there. So basically, we are on the path of somewhere between 5 to 12 feet sea level rise by the end of the century. 
and three feet by the 2050. Wow. Bob Riley, you have your hand up. You're going to need to unmute to ask your question. Well, uh, yeah. Tomorrow I'm uh, on a panel with uh, Dean Dan Robeson of Iowa State, and we're going to be talking about regenerative agriculture. And uh, you talked a little bit about getting regenerative within 100 years. And of course, you know, given the mentality or the, the proclivity of farmers in Iowa, to uh, not particularly like change. Um, my sense is it's going to take us more than 100 years to get regenerative in the agricultural world. And of course, without food, we're kind of in a bind. And as Iowa farms, so does the world. So can you give me a pathway to this 100 years of regenerative activity or some milestones between here and there that would that would give me hope that we can get there from here? So uh, there's multiple dynamics. First of all, I strongly disagree with you that it'll take longer than 100 years to convert the Iowa farmers. Um, right now, what the industrial age did was did, you know, monocrops, which, which degrades the soil and is not natural at all. So uh, there's a lot of farming that's already gone regenerative. The, the multiple crops, you know, the, the grasses grow to feed the cows that fertilize the land and multiple crops. And, and so there's a whole lot of being done on there. The other thing that's being done is that, it, well, first of all, with, with global warming, you know, Saskatchewan is going to replace Iowa as the breadbasket of the world. I mean, the, the long-term play of Russia is to become the breadbasket of the world because it's the biggest country. Canada is the second biggest country. We're the third biggest country. So that's another dynamic is the, the northward moving of breadbasketness, if you will. The other thing is, and they're probably in Iowa, as there are in Florida, lots of what I call ghost malls or vacant 10,000 square foot, 20,000 square foot things that used to be Kmarts or Walmarts. So those are going to become vertical gardens. So for example, in, a, in, a, in an old um, big box store that is now vacant outside Des Moines, you'll be able to have 11 crop seasons in a year because it's all inside. And you won't need fertilizer. Because, I mean, you won't need um, um, uh, uh, pest sprays. You know, so, so it'll all be organic. So there's a lot of dynamics coming into play. If the Iowa farmers don't change, they're gonna lose their land, the land's gonna be degraded and uh, new forms of agriculture will force them to change. I think, I think, I think we will be off monocrop industrial farming in 10 years in this country. Do you know anybody currently doing that model in the ghost malls that you're talking about? Oh sure, there's lots of models about that. There's lots of there's lots of um, um, you know real estate has something called highest use. What is the highest value of the real estate? And in an age where physical real estate is contracting, what are you going to use the malls for? What do you you have to you have to reuse them, redesign them for something else? So yeah, there's lots of there's some places in New Jersey. There's some, there's some places in Chicago. Where they actually have a warehouse where they have where they have um, fish, they have crops, they have all kinds of things in an interrelated basis. So I, I mean, I think I think farming is going to be at the cutting edge. So I mean, I think I think Robert that that the that, um, People don't like change. As a futurist, I'm told, oh, I don't like change. And the, pro and the issue with that is the only constant in the universe is change. So when somebody says to me they don't like change, that's like I'm, I'm holding the universe at the door because I don't like change. So, and it's what, it's what Julie said, you know, when I spoke to her group, there were some people that were middlemen. Well, if they didn't change, they'd be out of business, right? So, so um, with the speed of change, accelerating on a daily basis. Those that change will win, those that change will lose. I mean, we're at one of those moments in time. 
So Bob, go ahead. You probably have follow-ups. This is an area of interest that you're deeply involved with. Well, uh, you know, we've got 23 million acres of uh, cropland here in Iowa, row crop, and uh, we've had approximately um, uh, 2 million of those 23 million that has decided to do something on a conservation level so far. So the adoption has been slow. Now, maybe it'll be a hockey stick. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, uh, I'm not, uh, and you know, we don't grow food here. We grow feed for animals that, right. that people eat. Right. So we don't have the same system with malls and you know vegetable growing and things like that but uh um, i'm i agree with you that if we don't change we won't have any soil left uh we've already you know run half of that away so uh, but i'm not i'm not sure the mentality of uh, you know coming to the brink on every issue and then saying oh maybe we ought to change i'm not sure that's going to that's going to change here in Iowa that quickly, but I, maybe you're, you've got a better sense you of know, that. As a, as a futurist, I'm very sensitive to those moments in time where all of a sudden perception changes, right? You know, um, I don't know what the specific real estate market was in Iowa, but I'll bet in 2007, people were buying a lot of real estate. In 2009, people trying to get rid of it. Oh, real estate's only going up in value. Whoops, guess not, right? So, so things can happen really quickly if something if something triggers a cascading set of events. Like, for example, I'm writing some columns on the future of EVs, electric vehicles, right? And so one way of looking at it is, well, they're going to move from internal combustion engine or ICE cars to EVs. So what percent and what's going to happen and how do we set up charging stations? But there's cascading events. For example, you know, question to the room what's the most profitable part of a car dealership the service department right okay well the modern american japanese car has 5000 moving parts a tesla has 250 so the degree that the evs take on dealerships will go out of business right and then you have the whole thing about somebody must somebody here must have a classic car i used to have a few like a 57 chevy to use the cliche so I got a 57 Chevy. There's going to be now in Iowa, the word de-icing is relative to getting on a plane when it's cold, right? De-icing is the de-internal combustion engine. There's going to be a whole um, industry growing up on converting classic cars, your favorite pickup truck, your old, that, that happens to be a turn, converting it in to an electric vehicle, right? So there's gonna be all these cascading changes that happen when one technology changes. So, so for example, um, you know, relative to go back to the Iowa farms from it and the, and, and the millions of acres, um, the regenerative farms are not gonna have the degradation of the soil. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should go do that. So there's always, when there's a time of change, people look to the left, they look to the right, and they wait for somebody to do it and somebody does it and shows how to change, then people have something to follow. So we're right at that moment on a lot of different things. One of the reasons I am, I'm not apocalyptic, but actually, you know, apocalypsis, apocalyptic comes from the ancient Greek, which is apocalypsis, which is the revelation or the lifting of the veil. So we've always felt that apocalyptic as a word was the end of things is no, it's not the end of things. The end of things is we know it. So we're about ready to have a lot of revelatory across the board uh, insights as to alternative ways to do things. You know, just in the last 15 years, the amount of renewable energy in, in the world has gone from 1% to 11%. So David, as I hear you talk about us being in an inflection point, I can't help but think about Congress and lobbyists because it may make perfect sense for uh, crops to be diversified and cover crops and all those things. But when you have a lobby 
funneling billions of dollars into existing farm practices because it benefits the pesticide manufacturers or benefits this or that. It's hard for common sense to uh, take hold when there's financial incentives from the federal government to keep things going as they are. Yeah. So your question is? My question is, I guess I'm skeptical that that these things can actually take hold in the in the current psyche if there's no financial incentive. Okay, so um, in my 2012 book, Entering the Shift Age, I wrote a lot of what I thought was profound stuff. What I thought was clever that came out of the book that became profound because of the way everybody took on the concept was the concept of legacy thinking. Legacy thinking is thought from the past. So for example, the age of the people on this call, we all had our thoughts shaped in the 20th century. So we, Congress is the example, is kind of powered into the 21st century with conceptual constructs of the 20th. So the legacy thinking is what exists now, right? So it's hard to see what the future will be, which is why I have a career, uh, if everybody is in into the current structures. So the current structures are in our minds. We've institutionalized them into law and the money around it, right? That will change because it it's gonna it's gonna come up against itself. So so you know um money corrupts politics. Those that have money come from the established businesses. So the establishment maintains it, it it's hard to change things because because there's the installed base that benefits from keeping the install base as it is. I mean, that's what the only thing you're talking about, Julie. In other words, it, those that haven't created the new thing have yet to create the new thing to make the money from the new thing to influence the politics. So, I mean, there's no question, but, but money corrupts politics, always has, always will. So, so change always tends to come historically from the fringes and works its way into the middle. So at the, another way, another, a great, a great metaphor is there, there were three great futurists in the last 75 years. One of them is Dr. Alvin Toffler. The other two, Marshall McLuhan and our book, Mr. Fuller. Toffler had a great metaphor. I've used it over and over again. So the metaphor is this. There's a cop who's standing by the highway. And on that highway are all the institutions of the American culture, right? Going at 100 miles an hour, radar is the American corporation. Going at 60 miles an hour, is the fa American family going at 40 miles an hour is is NGOs going at, at 40 miles an hour is 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 union and labors labor movements going at 10 miles an hour is higher education going at three miles an hour is, five miles an hour is the executive branch and going at three miles an hour is the United States Senate if you think about that right then then the corporation oh, and, and and also the regulators are at 40 percent at 40 miles an hour so the corporation's gone 100 miles an hour the regulators have only gone 40 miles an hour so why are, are corporations always against regulators because they're they're behind right and higher ed is the slowest of uh, is 10 percent. so a corporation goes 100 miles in an hour the education and industrial complex goes 10 miles an hour, which is why corporations are saying, you're not training the people at the level we need them. So, so different aspects of, of society move at different rates of speed and change. And, and the most conservative and the slowest moving, of course, are the legislative branch of the United States government. Remember, I one of the, you know I have to, I say that there's, there's four things in the in the 2020s that are the, the the overarching dynamics 
It's the age of climate. It's the age of intelligence. It's a, it, it's a coming new consciousness. And it's the necessary reinvention of capitalism and democracy because capitalism and democracy were invented in the 1700s. Adam Smith, the great architect of capitalism, died in 1792 before the Industrial Revolution. So the guy who was the architect of what we think of capitalism was basing it on the agricultural age. So there's always this lag in perception. This is where we've been. It's kind of like we back into the future, right? You, the metaphor is rowing a boat, right? You can't see where you're going unless you turn and look over your shoulder. So we're all busy rowing someplace, backing into the future. Very well said. Bryce Oakley, you have a question. And uh, Diana Sickles, you had your hand up earlier. So feel free to raise your hand again. But let's hear from Bryce. Well, David, I, I would I would agree. I've, I've always felt that it was there were two systems, capitalism and governance. Um, and, or you could call it uh, economics and politics, capitalism, and, and that's the great American experiment. People have heard me talk about that before. And between the two, there's a dynamic tension. Um, uh, capitalism needs to be regulated to the extent it provides a safety net for the for the represented democracy. That's the American experiment. My question is, however, um, uh, and I think this is the world we're in right now, is that the dysfunctional part of, of that, that, that equation is our governance. Uh, I'm going to give you an example, and it's a question, David. Uh, we have talked about uh, agriculture in Iowa, the erosion of soil and water quality. And it's my personal view that uh, governance will run much too slowly in your highway uh, to solve that problem, and that capitalism will, in fact, do it. If it values the major resource upon which industrial agriculture requires, and that is a healthy soil and water quality to run a good economics. If not, we will end up in Saskatchewan. The trouble with Saskatchewan is that that isn't going to happen for quite a while, and we don't have that much time. So I think that industrial agriculture is going to have to solve that while governance repairs itself. That's my uh, example. Yeah, I mean, obviously the model I just gave shows that governance is bringing up the rear, right? It's in the caboose. Um, but if you have, you know, the problem, the problem today with capitalism is it's really disproportionately controlled by large corporations, not by individuals or entrepreneurs to some degree. And um, I think that uh, to the degree that that locks it all down, capitalism will have trouble. Because if you believe in markets, then somebody will come along and will be a very successful farmer and get ever more people to join them and have ever more hundreds of thousands of acres in Iowa doing it differently. And then it will happen, right? In other words, right. it, 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 capitalism works if you believe that it brings newness to the market. I mean, Henry Ford, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, right? Yep. Um, so self-interest. Self-interest, right. The problem we have is that self-interest there's a quote that I use from Gandhi relative to everybody having enough to live on earth. He says, we don't have enough for everybody's greed, but we have enough for everybody's need. Mm -hmm. And because we've overpopulated the planet so much, we've backed ourselves. We're backing ourselves into so many corners or up against the wall, whatever the metaphor is. And so the problem I have with, with, if you think of capitalism and democracy, particularly capitalism, it hasn't changed enough to reflect the reality around it. There's more people who, there, everybody I'm looking at probably interacts with their doctors and their financial institutions on their phone, right? More or less. 
you know, dual verification, this and that. But we have to go on a work day, most of us are retired, on a Tuesday to go vote. So the whole structural history of, of democracy in the United States is restriction of voting, right? The founding fathers could all vote because they were white and they owned land. So that was the only people who could vote then. Now, at least there's somewhat more percentage can vote, but at every step, women couldn't vote until 125 years into the, into the country, right? Blacks couldn't vote until 50 years ago to the degree that they can now, right? So, so there's always, there's always government. So I don't know that that's the government, right, Bryce? I don't know that, that the government is holding back human rights as much as those in power in the economy hold them back. So, so I think, I think that, um, why, why can't, you know, the, the reason the reason we vote on Tuesdays in the United States goes back to the 1800s and the necessity of market day in all in various counties. Why is it that that in that uh, in other countries around the world, in other democracies, you can vote on Saturday or Sunday, right? Make it easy. We we we've never made it easy for people to vote. So um, why not? If if we can all vote on American Idol to, for American Idol on our phone, <laughs> we can all we can all do our transactions, financial con, you know confidential transactions or confidential health interactions with our doctors on the phone. Why can't we vote on phone? Okay, we have <clears throat> we have Mary Ellen Miller and then Richard Gilbert with questions. Mary Ellen, you'll need to unmute. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, David. That's no, okay. Mary Ellen, you're up first. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for this interesting conversation. I want to go back to demographics and population just briefly. Sure. David, I spent my professional career in epidemiology and I loved studying plagues. So I'd like your viewpoint on the recent COVID pandemic because it's clear that at some level too much population is going to be counterbalanced uh, it's going to be taken care of by disease and the other part that i'm curious about it i just saw i've often had this idea that we can self-regulate our population by just stop having children or having so many and i just yesterday there's an article in the atlantic about how children don't provide happiness to marriages and a lot of women chimed in on that article about, boy, I decided when I was 15 or 18, I was not going to have babies. Is that a trend? Do you see coming where we seriously, I mean, I did. I, at 14, I said, I'm not doing this because you, you don't have, you don't have a choice. It, you, you know, the choice was go out and have a career or be a breeder and a caretaker the rest of your life. And I saw what it did to women, but I, I'd like you to comment on that. Do you see that as um, a strong trend or just a peripheral one? I have to answer that in different, uh, different ways. In terms of the United States and the developed countries of the world, it's become real clear over the last 10 years that the millennial generation, those born birth years 1981 to 1997, are the first generation that truly are thinking about not having kids in a significant number, or if they're having them, they're having one or maybe two. So um, yes, it is a trend. It's happening in the developed countries of the world. The replacement rate of a population is 2.1 kids per childbearing woman. Of course, childbearing has changed from 15 to 35 to, you know, 18 to 50 with, with modern medicine. But nevertheless, the replacement rate is 2.1. So if 2.1 children were born to every childbearing woman, you have a constant inflation, a constant population. In 1950, the global pop, the global replacement rate was 5.1. Now the United States 
fell below one point, below 2.1 in the 1990s made up by Hispanic immigration, okay? The only part of the world that's over 2.1 are two parts, Asia and Africa. So between now and 2100, North American continent will contract in population, Europe will contract in Africa and Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, will increase. So um, there's a there is a uh, there's a brilliant guy. I'd recommend this book, A Planet of Three Billion, by Christopher Tucker, who's the CEO of the American Geographical Society, who basically introduced me to this whole concept. And in order to get to three billion people by 2100. We have to have the replacement rate, the, the absolute fertility rate, go down to 1.3 by 2030. If it goes down to 1.3, in other words, 1.3 children per childbearing woman globally, we'll be at 3 billion by 2100. So all we have to do is not breed. I like your phrase, you have to get up a career or you're a breeder. So increasingly, the younger demographics and of course, the other thing that happens, and this is this is has been documented for 50 years. If a woman gets educated, she has fewer children. If a woman moves to a city, she has fewer children. So we have urbanization going on and education going on. So that's why in the developed countries of the world, the population rate has gone below replacement. In 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 Africa, where there isn't that sophistication, you have babies, right? I mean, you got to remember that in, in 1900, the average American family had five kids, okay? One child was lost to an infancy disease. Another child was lost to a childhood disease. And with good fortune, the remaining three made it to adulthood. So you had to have five to get three into adulthood. Now you have one kid, you can pro high probability get them into adulthood. So- it, yeah, it, it, it's a, it, it is a huge shift going on because most of the people on this call were born, were born into, I mean, I, I'm going to make another slightly off topic statement. If you, I think that the hundred years between 1950 and 2050 is the transition between a largely patriarchal history and a future matriarchal history. Women are in ascendancy across the board. And once women have control of their lives, they have fewer kids. Interesting. Okay, Richard Gilbert is next, followed by Bob Leonard. Well, first of all, I, uh, I think I was going to ask you, how, how are you going to get to 3 million? And you answered that very well. Um, some years ago, uh, one of the guys in, a, in the CEO group that you talked to made the observation, he happened to be in the flesh valve business, made the observation that the wars of the 21st century will be fought over water. What are the implications of, as futurists, about the access to water uh, in all of this for the next uh, 10, 15, or 20 years? I completely agree with that statement. I mean, it was, a, it was, it was I think it was like three or four years ago that Cape Town, South Africa, almost went dry, right? Um, um, if not for these I think they're called bomb cyclones or whatever that have been hitting yeah. the West Coast. If not for those, um, uh, Nevada and Arizona would be on a water watch right now. Um, so I absolutely, I don't know if the wars are gonna be won, fought over water or not. Um, I mean, that that's a bit of an overstatement to make a point, but there's, Every single year going forward, there. If, if you read widely or consume news, global news widely, there will always be a city or a country that's about to run dry from this point forward. Wow. The in, the interesting thing is, and I and I did this research 15 years ago. So from 1915 to 1920 is when the federal government and the Western states got together to apportion the flow of the Colorado River since it, since it is the primary source of water for most of the Western states, right? And they adjudicated it based on the river flow of 1915 to 1920. What has only become apparent since then 
was that that was an unusual time that of, of water flow that has never been replicated since. So they based the the they based the structure of who which state got what amount of water on an annual basis based on a historically high river flow that is now completely to go down. Simultaneously, the population has gone from several million to more than 100 million in that same area. So um, that exists everywhere around the world, Richard. You know, the, bill, the, 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 um, the use of water has always been like the use of air. It's always there. It's free right? It's about ready to become not free. It's about ready to become restricted. It's about ready. I don't know if wars will be fought over it, but certainly um, there will be issues around water. All right, Bob Leonard, you're next. Thank you. Did I answer that, Richard, enough for you? Yes, thank you. Okay. Bob Leonard, where are you, Bob? I'm here. Oh, okay. My question is, authoritarian repressive movements are on the rise across the world, including in the US. What are the implications? Uh, why and what can we do to stop them? Again, I want to a reference. As a futurist, I tend to be slightly ahead of general thinking, right? And I'm also feeling a sense of when something is about to change dramatically. I believe that the story of the increase of autocracy around the world is already history. I believe that 2014 to 2020 will be looked upon as a rise, as a rise, it's my doctor calling, I usually would get it, but everybody on this phone call knows I should, but I won't. Um, um, the, um, I think, I think with the 22 midterm elections in the United States, democracy is back in the ascendancy. And I think it will be around the world. I personally, I have a personal view that is a futurist view as well on the significance of the uh, war in Ukraine. I think, it's, I think it's a defining moment. And I think that the war in Ukraine um, um, assuming Ukraine wins will be the kind of end of the authoritarian rule. Remember, back in October, in November, President Biden was being taken to the woodshed by all the prognosticators that he was so stupid to think that the election was about democracy and so stupid to think the election was about woman's right to choose. And in fact, those that voted for the Democrats and increased in the Senate and had a, a historically unprecedented least amount of lost seats, or I'm not saying that well, um, was all due to those two things, right? So I think, I think yes, there's been a rise of autocracy around the world, but, but I think that the autocrats are starting to have trouble. Clearly, Putin is way overextended. He's a paper tiger. Russia now becomes the largest rogue state in history. It's going to be, you remember when the war started, the, the GDP of Russia was less than New York State. Okay. So, so, and, and, and Turkey, uh, I, I think, I think, um, so Richard, I want to believe that. So I'm not sure how much I'm allowing myself to be influenced by my personal belief or desire. But I do think that, you know, like, look, look at what they're talking about in the UK. Hey, can we come back into the EU? You know, we made a mistake. Um, and um, so I, I really think that, that it's, it, it will be looked back on in two or three years as a period of time that's now passed. Thank That's you. my viewpoint. Connie Weimer has a good question and uh, you can ask it yourself or if you'd like me to ask it for you, I'm happy to do so. Okay, she'd like you to talk about artificial intelligence. Okay. Where that's going. First of all, 
artificial intelligence, just like VR, was the next has been the next big thing for decades. It wasn't until 2016 that it started to become the next big thing when AlphaGo beat the world's greatest Go player um, in a series of five games. I won't go into that detail unless you're interested. But that got me interested in, in, in it in 2016. So what did I do? I believe in dictionaries. I went to the dictionary and in five dictionaries, I looked up the word intelligence. Not one of them had the word human in the definition, right? Whales are intelligent. Dolphins are intelligent. Somebody on this Zoom meeting has called their pets intelligence. The universe is intelligence. So intelligence exists outside humanity. So my belief, and I'm swimming upstream on this, is that by calling it artificial intelligence, on sub subliminal, sublinguistic level, we've made it something negative to be concerned about because it's artificial, it's not real. The only time that I've ever felt good about something artificial was the one or two times I went to ski resorts and there wasn't snow, so they had artificial snow. <laughs> In our lives, artificial is not as good as real. So I call it technological intelligence because that's what it is. It is true intelligence. It exists in technology. So once you make that change in language, it becomes less threatening. It is, it is technological intelligence. The future evolution of humanity is the merger of humanity and technological intelligence over the next 40, 50 years, okay? So I think the future is here. It's here to stay. I was just uh, I'm a futurist in residence at the Ringling College of Art and Design um, down here. And I just met with President Larry Thompson because he wanted to know about it. And I just said, technology is a tool, right? You know, um, the chisel was a tool. What did photographers think with the digital camera in the beginning part of this? Oh, was all the work of photography done in the dark room so that digital photography should not be embraced? What about the calculator, right? Oh, calculator shouldn't be allowed in schools, right? They should use the slide rule. So, so you can't stop technology and technology are only tools and technology is morally neutral, okay? Technology is morally neutral. The Wright brothers shortened distances in 1901 and in 1915, we were dropping bombs from planes. So it's how humans use it. I think, and, and anybody who has not used chat GPT should try it. It's that profound. It really is. It really is. I was talking to a, a retired oncologist the other night who said it's going to revolutionize diagnostic uh, tools for physicians because there's no way any one physician, no matter how experienced they are, can have that breadth of knowledge about uh, trends and new developments in in uh, treatment and and that was one application that came up in conversation the other day connie i don't know if you've tried chat gpt but it's absolutely fascinating in terms of what it's going to mean for the publishing industry uh and i'm sure you've you've thought about that and discussed it so so the thing so so connie i think it, it i think it, it there's no stopping technology Technology is morally neutral and technological intelligence. I don't think I'll win that. So AI is the single greatest technology ever invented because it has the potential within it to change, to completely change everything. In the most quoted research piece was from Oxford University in, in 2013, which looked at the American labor land, professional landscape, labor landscape, occupations, workforce, and forecast how much of each category of career would be eviscerated by artificial intelligence by 2030. 50% of legal, 50% of accounting, because it's just repetitive work. So, so literally, what it's going to do, it's going to change how we work or need to work. It's going to change 
diagnostics, as, 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 as Julie just said, there's all kinds of research that shows that artificial intelligence picks up significant um, um, incidents of the breast cancer in women that doctors have missed, right? So, and, and in terms of creativity, um, I, write, I write columns in my newsletter, I write them on, on the Sarasota Hill Tribune, and I did a, I said, I said to chat GPT, please write in the style of futures David Hoole on the future of Sarasota. Please write in the style of futures David Hoole on the, the possibility of affordable housing in Sarasota. And I published it as a column, right? One of the things you do read about it is all some of the weird stuff. Like if you read the Washington Post and New York Times about, oh, the, the, the Bing search engine wanted me to divorce my husband and, you know, that crap. Remember, artificial intelligence gets it all its information from the internet. And what do we know about the internet? We question what is true and what is not true. So human lies gets incorporated into AI, garbage in, garbage out. So if humanity is lying online, that's all ChatGPT has. Well, we have bled over our one hour time uh, request. I've, I've, been, I've been very verbose. I, I don't mind going on a little bit more if you wanna have some question, more questions. Well, you're wonderful to be here with us. And I, what I'd like to do, if you're willing, David, at the end of the hour, I break out folks into rooms. We'll probably have five breakout rooms. If you wouldn't mind bopping in and out of, of one of those, I think that would be wonderful. It gives people an opportunity to meet folks they might not have met otherwise. But if you can stay, please do for about five minutes and we'll, we'll move into the breakout rooms. But thank I, you I, again. I, 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 I'm happy to do that. I want to thank everybody for being here. I'm sorry if I went off on tangents, but 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 you just have to control how I bop, Julie. I'm not sure how to bop from room to room, so you'll have okay. to leave my bopping, okay? I'll, I'll bop for you. Here we go. Thank you, David. Okay, thank you.